It's time for episode 76 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, February 25th, 2015. Clockwise, four people, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, the podcast that runs through your fingers like sand through an hourglass. I am your co-host, Jason Snell, and across the country from me in the frigid northeast. It w- actually, most of my guests and co-hosts are in frigid places today. This is funny. Dan Morin, hello. Hi, Jason. I assume you just invited us all so you could lord over your wonderful temperatures. Yeah, it's sunny and nice out here. You're welcome to come on by. <laughs> it's sunny and something out here. <laughs> Dig a snow I could, tunnel. I could probably slide all the way to you right now. Uh, to my left, one of our fine guests today, it is a longtime clockwise guest. She's back again, also from the frigid Northeast, Serenity Caldwell. Hello. Burr. Hello. <laughs> uh, and even farther to the east, if such a thing were possible, joining us from the lovely land of Scotland is iOS and Mac developer James Thompson. Hi, James. Hi, Dan. And Welcome. And Serenity. Do you have any snow? Um, uh, no, there's no snow at all here. It's mainly rain at the moment. Mm. Um, we have, from my recollection of my time in Scotland, there doesn't, there's not that much snow. It does get cold, but I feel like more rain than snow. Yeah, general misery. I think yeah. is what we go for. <laughs> is that what happens when you open up dark skies? Just like today's forecast, general misery. <laughs> yeah, uh, dark skies. Uh, it, it normally beeps at me ten minutes after it started raining <laughs> to say it's about to start raining heavily, and I say yes, I know. As you stand there drenched. Yes, thank you. Anyway, here's how this works. Clockwise, we talk about four technology topics. Uh, Every guest brings their own. Since I uh, introduced the show, I'll go with mine first, and then we'll proceed clockwise. Uh, I... I wanted to do something non-topical and talk about uh, things that are attached to our televisions. If you if you do have a television, uh, we'll start there. If you don't have a television, you're going to have to explain if you watch uh, motion pictures and televised uh, content in some other way. But I was just curious, what devices are attached? to your TV. I'll go first. My living room TV has a Mac mini attached to it. It has a DVR attached to it. It has a DVD player attached to it. It has a Wii U attached to it. It has an Xbox 360 attached to it, an Apple TV. And, and a small blender. I think that might... Oh, and actually uh, the uh, the charging station for the Wii remotes is USB-based, so it's plugged into the <laughs> USB port on the TV, so it charges when the TV is on. Uh, so it's a lot of... I have a bunch of different boxes boxes. Um, although, as I wrote on on uh, Six Colors this week, I'm mostly using the TiVo now because the TiVo does a lot of streaming stuff. Um, but just so many boxes, way too many boxes attached. So I'm curious what, what you you all have attached to your, uh, your TVs, what devices are plugged in. Ren, what about you? You know, well, so I have a small TV and uh, likewise a small area to put my television accessories. And yet still I managed to have crammed a fair amount there. There's a Chromecast back there. There's an Apple TV. There's an Xbox 360. Um, and a cable box, which hilariously I don't actually use, um, but was part of my when I went to try and cancel my television service. Comcast was like, hey, we'll undercut your service by $10 if you keep the cable box and we'll give you free HBO. So it, it basically just sits taking up space. But mostly I think I use the the Apple TV and the Chromecast right now to, to stream and watch stuff. Uh, let's see. Too many things account. I think I might have a problem when it comes to HDMI. 
connections. Let's see. I've got a an old DVD player, which I still keep around because it's region free. Um, ah. I and I have a few discs from region two. Uh, an Xbox 360, a Fire TV, an Apple TV. Um, occasionally a Fire TV stick, which I wrote a review on a while back. Uh, a Mac Mini. Um, I think that might be most of the things. They all sort of run through a receiver too, uh, and right. I. But I think that's most of the hardware that's there. Um, I've recently been considering purchasing an Xbox One, so that would be another thing. But I hear you can run the Xbox 360 through the Xbox One, which is crazy to me. Um, So there's a a lot of different things there. I can apparently watch Netflix about eight different ways, uh, but it apparently has the same content no matter what, apparently, which is a little disappointing. I was hoping there might be secret caches in there. It's like, oh, things you can only watch if you access via a Fire TV stick because nobody has one. Um, and in addition to all of that, my TV, which is fairly new is a smart TV. So it in fact has a bunch of those apps and stuff on it. So yeah, uh, that's great. I have way too many options and there's still nothing on. Well, uh, I think the most important thing I have connected to my TV is an HDMI switch box to connect all the other things to it. <laughs> so I have also a Mac mini, which I use as a media center and games machine, which for running things like Kodi, the app formerly known as XBMC. Um, I've got a PlayStation 4, a PlayStation 3 that can play PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 1 games. <laughs> um, I've got an Xbox One. A dedicated Blu-ray player and a satellite TV tuner, which is a DVR, and uh, also a Raspberry Pi, which used to be my media center. Um, I use a Logitech Harmony One remote to control everything, which works well for the most part. I don't have a Wii U, and the original Wii is packed away along with the 360. I realize I've got like four Blu-ray players, four devices that play games, five devices that can run Netflix, and at least three (laughs) to four that can do BBC iPlayer. But they all do something slightly different and none of them do it perfectly, which is why I need the next generation Apple TV with apps. (laughs) uh, So I can have six devices that can run Netflix, (laughs) iPlayer and play games. This is great. I I don't have a a big conclusion here other than to say that we have lots of devices and I, I have a sneaking suspicion that we're going to look back on this era from some time in the relatively near future and say, can you believe it that we had all those boxes? Oh, who am I kidding? We're going to have 80 boxes attached to our TVs for the rest of our lives. But uh, I think I think it's interesting that there are so many different options out there and there's so many different devices. And yes, like uh, James has a switcher. I think Dan and I both have uh, basically amplifiers that also do HDMI switching. It's the same thing. Uh, I actually use my TV as the hub because my oh. receiver is so old. It's from interesting. the 90s. Does not have it's HDMI ports. Well, my, so my amp, yeah, my amp, I bought one with an HDMI switcher in it because uh, that was the only way I could get everything connected. It's pretty crazy. Anyway, lots of boxes, lots of cables. We're keeping the cable makers in business, folks. Yay. Yeah, they really need our help. All right, that's all. That's that was my my question, Ren. What do you have for us? Uh, so my uh, my desk is currently covered in iPad styluses. Surprise, surprise uh, for those people who have known me. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, one of the big jobs that I'm tackling and I'm more this year is organizing a giant uh, thorough stylus review. And there are lots of different styluses these days. There are regular styluses. There are Bluetooth styluses. There are pressure-sensitive styluses. Um, and as I've kind of gone through each one of these, I'm starting to wonder, um, is this all futile? Is the, is the Apple Pen going to come out this year and, and make me 
curse all of the time that I just spent reviewing accessories that are no longer going to be useful? Or do you think that styluses would still potentially have a, uh, <laughs> a, a market if uh, if Apple does decide to release an Apple Pen this year? Well, I, I think that they probably still have a market. But I mean, who will really need pens anymore? And I just say that to make Mike Hurley's head explode because I know he loves his pens. Um, I, it's one of those things that I think the stylus is still kind of a niche market. Um, not a lot of people need them. There are people who really do find them useful and especially in professional capacities, but I think Apple would have to come up with something really compelling to broaden that reach. Even if it does though, I think, you know, as we're seeing in the case with sort of smartwatches, an Apple pen would likely work great with Apple touchscreen technology and perhaps not so great or not at all with any other touchscreen technology or touch-sensitive technology. So those legions of people still using uh, Android smartphones or whatever Android tablets are still in business would probably not hasten to pick up an Apple Pen and all those you know graphics tablet solutions, et cetera, that have their own styluses built in as part of that solution would probably also not see a lot of converts. So I think that's a really edge market, and I'm not convinced that Apple will spend the time to pick it up, but you never know. It's possible if they come up with a really killer app that works with the pen in conjunction with, say, the iPad, that they could find a lot of converts there and and convince a lot of people to pick up styluses. But I'm, I'm very skeptical about it. Well, uh, let us not forget flash-based MP3 p- players. I think anything <laughs> yeah. is possible. Um, I think the short answer to all your questions is yes. Um, I could absolutely see a, a big-screen iPad Pro come out with support for a, a dedicated Apple Pen, but um, probably as an optional extra, depending on how expensive it is. But I don't see Apple making a pen that even works with existing iPads. So I think for the sake of simplicity, it might just come with some iPad Pro. And I don't see the iPad Pro having a holder for a stylus, like a Nintendo 3DS type of thing, as that would probably make it too thick. Um, but as Dan was saying, I mean, we don't think of iPad pens or styluses as being a mainstream item. You know, it's something for artists or professionals. But I wonder if we're just thinking about it in a very narrow, wrong way. And Apple might see it as a way to make creation on a tablet more accessible for like kids and everybody. I, I'm uh, I'm on the record as being somebody who doesn't like uh, pens. I'm, I'm an enemy of pens. I don't like handwriting things. I like typing things. I, I think uh, it's unlikely that Apple will do a pen that's anything more than a, a, a tool for, for creation for mostly uh, artists and the like. And uh, I think they'll only do it if it's tied to a new iPad, whether it's a big iPad or just a new model where they part of the story of the product is that this is finally the, the one that you can draw on and look at this amazing art that this artist that we invited to Cupertino and locked in a room for uh, the two weeks before the product was announced. Announced, Drew. Um, I, I could see that. Uh, I don't know if I would put money on it. I think that maybe um, I'm a little more skeptical about the possibility of this rumor of a, of a big iPad, uh, potentially with a pen. Uh, and I am with James. I feel like if if it does happen, I, I have a harder time imagining that 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 pen would also be something that would be deeply integrated into the iPad, the existing iPads that are out there. So I think your stylus's review would probably be fine. It's safe. Yeah, I, I think I tend to agree with y'all um, in that I like I really want an Apple-based stylus as a 
as an artist because I think that it would be very useful, um, especially considering that right now stylus makers are currently like hedging around Apple's hardware to try and make things that are semi-precise but not exactly. But I do think it's going to be niche. I think it's probably going to be targeted towards artists' enterprise. And I still don't know if it's going to come out this year. I'm kind of skeptical. All right, that's great. It's halftime. Time for our halftime sponsor. This episode of Clockwise is uh, brought to you by Bushel. They are our new halftime sponsor this week. Bushel is a cloud-based mobile device management solution for the Mac, iPhone, and iPad. It allows you to take control of the devices that you have for people that work in your business or your team. But what makes Bushel different is you don't have to read a bunch of IT books to understand how to use it. Bushel's been built to be easily used by anyone. It's a really powerful IT tool that doesn't need a dedicated IT manager. The user User interface is clean and simple to understand. It puts great power at your fingertips. With Bushel, you can easily manage the Apple devices used by the members of your team, set up, manage email accounts, require people to use passcodes on their devices for security purposes, wipe them remotely if you ever need to, like if they anger you in some way, you could just do it then or not. Uh, you can also remotely install apps on their devices that they, they need for their work. Now, something really cool about this is you can silo these apps from the others on someone's devices. So if you use something like Box in your workplace and you you install that on your team's phones and you want to ensure the documents in that app don't leave the app, you can stop the ability to share the data with other apps. That's a powerful way to maintain the security of your business's data. Uh, and you can do it with Bushel. So Bushel can help uh, if you've got to bring your own device policy in your workplace. You can set this up on people's phones so that you can erase the stuff that's important to your business if they leave the company. Uh, if this sounds interesting to you, you should check out Bushel. You can sign up right now at bushel.com. That's B-U-S-H-E-L. L.com. That's how you spell bushel, folks. Uh, the, the first three devices you register are free for life. And for any more, it's just $2 per device per month. It's a great deal. Go and check it out. Bushel.com. And thanks to Bushel for being the halftime sponsor of Clockwise. All right. Halftime's over. Dan, what's your topic? Well, so I've been uh, very interested in Kickstarter recently. Uh, the other day, Pebble launched its newest uh, kick version of its smartwatch on Kickstarter. Uh, and I was reading an editorial this morning, I think it was on Engadget, which was saying that Kickstarter is sort of suffering from this problem of uh, maybe losing its focus a bit. Uh, back in 2012, Kickstarter itself wrote a post that said Kickstarter is not a store. And they've kind of backed off that since. But what I find fascinating about the Pebble time release, other than the fact that it's made six gazillion dollars and it was funded in about 15 minutes, is the only thing that they're actually doing is basically pre or like letting people pre-order the new version of the watch which seems kind of antithetical to what kickstarter started up as so my question for you guys is has kickstarter sort of lost its focus as a useful tool and it's now being dominated by these giant products is there still something to be taken from kickstarter you know are competitors like indiegogo more compelling than kickstarter is now how do you think the state of sort of the crowdfunding thing is going these days james well, I've backed about 18 projects on Kickstarter so far with varying degrees of success, like the original Double Fine Broken Age adventure game with an estimated delivery of October 2012, which is still half finished, <laughs> uh, and the original Pebble, which I've worn for about two years now. I don't think anything I've backed has been a complete disappointment. A lot of it has been great. Uh Given that the Apple Watch is due about the same time as that the Pebble time comes out and I'll undoubtedly have to get an Apple Watch for development, it would be complete and utter madness for me to have backed the Pebble time, um, especially as you say, since this doesn't seem to be a true Kickstarter, as most of the work has already done. Uh, but I did anyway. Um, 
Mostly because they're doing something different and they're the sort of scrappy underdog of the smartwatch world. And I like being able to see the time on my watch when I look at it. And as a wise person once said to me on Twitter when I was debating whether or not to get one, you do have two wrists. So, I mean, I think that's what Kickstarter is still all about. It's the, hey, these guys are making something I believe in or I want to support. I'll give them some money. You know, does it matter if it's a rough prototype or that they're you know, two months away from shipping a product. Not really. I mean, in this case, it gives me slightly more confidence that the product is further along and I might actually get it. Not that I actually believe I'll get my Pebble time before I get my Apple Watch. I think it's brilliant that they announced this and and took orders. They're getting people to pay in advance of Apple Watch uh, coming out. I think that's kind of just a great piece of marketing. I think I like the nostalgia aspect. This is a product that the company that launched on Kickstarter. And so going back to Kickstarter for their next model is kind of nice. But I agree, Dan, with your premise. I think this is, uh, it's a marketing vehicle and it's good as a marketing vehicle. I think they're going to make this product regardless. Um, I'm skeptical that this is money that they, they absolutely need to make this product. Product and that they could have taken pre-orders on their own site just as easily. That said, they probably got more orders than they would have because people, Kickstarter works because of psychology. People love being part of a Kickstarter. And more than that, people love being part of a successful Kickstarter. And I, I've seen that affect myself. That's why I'm going to be getting exploding kittens cards, right? So <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, see? So uh, I, I think I think that's something about crowdfunding that's kind of brilliant. Um, and I'm okay with it. I think, I think that it's an interesting dynamic. And I think given that Pebble especially is so tied to Kickstarter because that's where the first product sold. I'm okay with them doing it. But yeah, you know, Kickstarter isn't what it initially seemed to be, which is a way for things to happen that otherwise wouldn't have happened without the support in advance of a community. That's still there, but there are a lot of other models too, including it just being a really great pre-order PR marketing stunt, which is what the Pebble time is. Yeah, I tend to agree with you, Jason. I I certainly don't think Kickstarter's original mission is dead because I still like about half of the Kickstarters that I've backed have been for small, otherwise completely unknown products or services that wouldn't have been able to start um, and get bearings or backings otherwise. Um, but there is there is more and more you see things like Pebble, things like Zach Braff's uh, ki- uh, let's Kickstarter. Kick, let's kick Zach yeah. Braff a few more times. No, yeah. you know what? I'm actually I'm actually not going to kick him um, <laughs> kick him for it because I think people people are like, oh yeah, that guy. You know, he has 22 million dollars. What does he need to do to? You know, why does he need to go panhandle to fans? But I think people don't really you know people have a tough time separating somebody's personal finances between somebody's business business decisions um, and making a movie is all well and good. It's like, yeah, I'm going to throw three million dollars of my own money into that. But it's not, you know, it's it's not something uh, that they can then go to the studio and see, like, look, there's an audience for this Buy our film. Whereas with Kickstarter, you totally can. And with things like the Pebble, you know, sure, Pebble could have had a private pre-order on its website. But now they get to a physically see just how many people are willing to buy things and publicly the world is able to see how many people are willing to still buy Pebbles in advance of the Apple Watch, which is actually, I think, good buzz for the Apple Watch and good buzz for wearables in general. Yeah, I think I, I sort of come down with you guys mostly on um, the thing about Kickstarter is not a zero sum game, right? Pebble being on there doesn't necessarily stop anybody from using Kickstarter for other projects or from anybody backing whatever projects they want to back. So I'm I'm fairly bullish on it still. I've only backed about eight or 10 projects. But like James, I've been pretty happy with the results of all of them. Um, 
I will say it's funny to me that Pebble decided to do this, and I think it's very much a marketing and PR move. It would also be hilarious to me in a future that will never happen when Apple decides to kickstart the Apple Watch and be like, yeah, we're putting our pre-orders up on Kickstarter. Uh, And then they blow through (laughs) Pebble's records in about two minutes. James, what topic have you brought for us today? Okay, well, having recently watched the excellent Ex Machina, a rather dark film by Alex Garland about the development of a sentient AI and whether it will pass the Turing test. Um, I came out of it thinking that it was a clever bit of science fiction and nothing more. But we've had a number of warnings recently from the likes of Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk that the future of AI might be arriving sooner than we think, and we need to start preparing for it now. Uh, Does everybody think that we'll see a true artificial intelligence in our own lifetimes? And is that a good or a bad thing? I, I'm really looking forward to looking at, to watching Ex Machina. Uh, Her is another good example of a movie that's about AI that um, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's much, I, I would bet you it's much more deep and thoughtful than you expect if you haven't seen it. Um, I doubt people, it's like fusion. AI is just around the corner and it never comes. And I feel like a, a true AI is like that. I, I feel like we are now starting to see what's what it's going to take to do true AI, which is like crazy machine learning stuff where you basically can't program intelligence. You just have to keep um, feeding data in and letting these sort of self-teaching, self-learning machines evolve. I'm skeptical that we'll ever get anything that we would consider intelligent um, in our lifetimes, I think it's possible, but I, I think we it pays to be skeptical for something like this because it's been just around the corner for so long. I do think that if it does happen, that it's probably not great for humanity. And, <laughs> I, and I don't mean that in a jokey Skynet sort of way. I mean that it, just th- thinking about the big picture, it's like maybe that is the next stage in the evolution of intelligence in the, in the universe is you create a machine intelligence. Now, I, I actually am skeptical that a machine intelligence would want to kill us. Um, but it, they may just leave us behind. And uh, that, that would be interesting to have a creature in our midst that was uh, smarter than us because we've, we've never had that. Uh, but I, I don't think it would be Armageddon. I just think that uh, when it happens, it will be a, a, a fundamental shift in how we view the universe. And maybe that's OK. But I don't think I don't think we're going to be alive to see it, frankly. Yeah, so I I did think very similarly to you, Jason, and then I've been having some conversations with a friend of mine who works at Viv Labs, um, which is the thing founded by the old Siri guys, and um, he posted a, a link to an article by Tim Urban called The AI Revolution, The Road to Super Intelligence, and a lot of it is very much, you know, it's it's Werner Vinge, uh, like, right. love. Singularities um, and yeah, things like exactly. that. I love that stuff. Yeah, well, but... But some of the points that he makes in the article are are pretty profound and also just the way he's talking about like, yes, it does seem like we've been on the cusp of AI revolution for a long time. But when you actually look at the advances that we've made in like the last 30 years, the last 60 years, the last 100 years, the last 200 years, uh, you bring somebody, you know, you, you time travel somebody from 1900 and bring them to 2015 and the shock of what you can do might be enough to kill them. Like <laughs> we've we've come a long way. And I'm not necessarily saying that I, I truly think we'll see AI revolution in our lifetimes. But when you get folks like Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates being like, yeah, this is a possibility. And also, not, o- not only is th- this is a potential possibility based on the, technolo- the technological 
technological scale curve. Um, but on top of that, uh, the people who are currently working on artificial intelligence, you're like, this is a very, very difficult path, right? Because if you're if you're talking about getting an AI from like AGI to ASI to super intelligence, um, you're going to want to teach it the right things so that it doesn't, you know, either end humanity or leave humanity behind. Um, because, you know, you 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 miscode one thing and, a, and an AI can be like, oh, humans are using up our resources. They just probably should be eliminated. It's for the better, you know, for the greater good. Um, so I like I think my main concern is like, I don't know if we'll see ASI in our lifetimes, um, but if we're going to, it worries me the companies that are currently investing in AI <laughs> technology. Yeah, I, I guess I come down on the skeptic side of it, which is that I think this is something very much like uh, you know, robots in that there is probably stuff out there. There's already stuff out there that looks similar to AI, but is not really true AI in the same way that we have like lifelike in quotes, androids. Right. And, and I think we probably suffer from a similar uncanny valley, which is that you get AI that's probably gets close to being perceived as human, but is still not quite right. Uh, and I think that AI is a lot harder than than people think it is, and especially because science fiction sort of has inundated us with this idea of artificial intelligence. I think it'll be something that we don't really expect at all. Uh, in college, I had some friends who worked on neural networks and things like that, and it was always really interesting to see those uh, those programs be able to figure things out and learn along the way. But at the same time, you would never confuse those things at that point for anything r approaching real intelligence. Uh, so, uh, especially when it comes to stuff like the singularity, which I often roll my eyes at, uh, I think we're probably a lot further away than people think. But I could be totally wrong. I am not a scientist. Well, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said categorically no as well. I studied AI, AI at university, and things were so basic back then, I was convinced that it would never be possible. But that was over two decades ago now. And I've been thinking about how much have changed since then. I mean, I did a paper on speech recognition, and that's gone from barely working to mostly working. And the like the Google Translator app is getting close to magical on a number of levels. But that's not really what I mean by AI. But it was the same paper, the, the AI Revolution by Tim Urban, that I, I had read as well. And it makes the good point that humans are really bad at predicting what the future will bring because yeah. they, they look at the progress that they've personally seen in the last 30 sure. years and apply that to what's going to happen in the next 30 when the rate of change is actually increasing. And he says in the paper that we're just standing before the bit of the graph that's about to shoot upwards, but we can't see it. Yeah, tangentially to that, I think that today's uh, uh, XKCD comic, which graphs works of science fiction when they were written and when they are set, which is also fascinating because you look at all those science fiction pieces that predict things, you know, that were written in the 50s and predicted space colonies and flying cars, and yet nobody thought about the internet, right? So th that goes to your point that people are really bad at predicting what the future might look like. But the, the paper makes a reasonably convincing argument, at least enough that I've changed my answer from definitely no to I don't know. Um, <laughs> Whether it's a good thing or not, well, I think for a generation that's grown up watching things like The Terminator and are now looking at the robots coming out of Boston Dynamics and drone warfare, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard to worry about where things might go. But um, I also think the machines will keep the programmers alive the longest, so I'm fine. 
that was a lot of fun. Uh, we have just enough time for our bonus topic. I'm going to keep this quick. We already covered it at the top. You guys can just complain and throw things at me. Uh, throw snowballs at me, guys. Uh, what's the thing you hate the most about the winter, Ren? Cold. Cold, 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 cold. I love the snow. I think snow is very beautiful. But anytime it drops below 32 and I have to put on five or six layers, uh, I'm out. I've been hiding in my house. Dan? Uh, uh, heating costs. I found out this week that my heating costs from last year went up from 50 cents per therm to 74 cents per therm, which is quite a jump. So my heating bill was pretty darn expensive this month. James? Well, uh, given that I'm just getting over a bad cold, I'm tempted to say that. But I think it would have to be the darkness. Living in Glasgow, which is fairly far north, the same as Moscow, um, it gets dark around 3 p.m. in the middle of winter Mm -hmm. and stays dark until 9 a.m. the next morning. And you get that day after day after day. To be fair, in the middle of summer, we get the exact opposite and it's light until 11 p.m. But what a price to pay. Well, the thing I hate the most about winter in California is that it's supposed to rain and it doesn't do that anymore, which might get a very dry summer. But otherwise, we have nothing to complain about. And that wraps up episode 76 of Clockwise. Serenity, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for being on this week. Absolutely. And James Thompson, thank you for being here. I'm glad to be on, even though I'm terrified that this is live. (laughs) (laughs) But by the time people hear this on a podcast, it won't be live, so you don't have to be scared. Don't think think about that too hard. Pleasure as always, Dan. Pleasure to be here. And everybody out there, we remind you, always watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.